you know, by doing nothing, you're making a choice, right? And that choice is to kick the can down the road. So can you tackle the problem now or are you going to leave it to the people behind you to tackle later because you don't want to deal with it? My name is Cody Sanford, and this is the Livable Future Podcast. Wildfires are intensifying because of climate change, but in this episode, we discuss how policies and proactive community efforts can be the driving factors of mitigating wildfire disasters. We delve into wildfire management strategies when facing large forest fires and discuss the role of fire in creating a resilient ecosystem. To begin, let's start with an overview of the U.S. Forest Service and the laws that led to the current conditions which result in these intense wildfires. The Forest Service was created in 1905 with the goals of protecting the timber supply chain and ensuring quality water in the United States. From the beginning, the Forest Service viewed fire suppression as essential to the goal of timber supply. However, in 1910, a huge fire known as the Big Blow-Up burned over 3 million acres across Idaho's forests. This fire is notable because afterwards, the agency gained public and government support for more staffing, resources, and an overall change in the way we manage forests. This was the beginning of fire suppression in the United States and remained the policy until modern ecology began to understand the importance of wildfires' role in ecosystems. And across the United States, this led to large, dense forests which are often dry and unhealthy. The let it burn policy grew in popularity in land management practices in the 1970s and when appropriate, the fire is allowed to burn while being monitored by land managers and scientists. This is quite the pivot from the complete suppression from the beginning of the agency. Now the management policy is adapting to address the new challenges posed by climate change. This is a quick overview of U.S. fire policy. If you'd like to know more, we will have these resources at the Livable Future podcast website. Some important resources from this section have been the Forest History Society and the U.S. Forest Service website. Present day, the Forest Service estimates that 73,000 wildfires burn an average of 7 million acres a year in the United States. A common thread of extreme fires is they occur in forests that are dense, dry, and filled with acres of dead timber. These types of fires are the ones typically mentioned during fire season, and it's easy to see the negative impacts of wildfires when these types of fires are the ones in major news. And they shouldn't be dismissed, but for a moment, let's talk about the ecological and societal benefits of wildfires that I believe help give a more holistic perspective on wildfires in general. Wildfires are a part of the ecological succession process. Ecological succession is a process of ecosystem change over time due to things like the arrival of new species and major disturbances in the landscape that alter the environment forever. The regulating services that wildfires provide are especially valuable to the ecosystem. The most obvious one is the reduction in extreme wildfires. The more small fires that burn, the less material is available, which therefore reduces the likelihood of an intense wildfire season. Wildfires also provide pest control and even help with water regulation. The fewer trees consuming water means this resource is now available elsewhere in the ecosystem. 
Research shows that ecosystems with forest clearings have the potential for deeper snowpack that melts later in the spring compared to dense forests. An important aspect to understand is that fire was a tool that Native Americans traditionally used to manage the land, and these ecosystems in the western states evolved naturally with fire. I want to highlight I'm summarizing a peer-reviewed journal titled Wildfires as Ecosystem Services, published in ESA Journal. You can find the link to this at the Livable Future Podcast website. Now I think it's time to bring in fire management analyst Dr. Casey Teske from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, who is here to help explain fire's role in the ecosystem. Dr. Teske, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Could you go into more detail into how you manage wildfires as an analyst? So I, I, I basically, I call it fire forecasting. You know, we have weathermen that tell us what the weather's going to do. You know, my people like me, our role is to try to understand what the fire is going to do in the next, in the long term. So in the next week to month, you know, and that's based on historical data. Um, that's based on what the current vegetation and topography is, where the fire is located. It's based on forecasts. So what's the fire going to do in the next three to five days? And so all this information is compiled. And what we do is we can come up with uh, maps, basically, for the operational people, so the people who are actually putting out fires, whether it's with the digging hand line like the hotshots do, or putting it out with the engines with the water, or the aircraft dropping the turbines on it, or whatever. So we try to see where the fire is likely to go and how it's going to behave when it gets there and when we think it's going to get there based on all these uh, conditions. And then um, we can use that information to be tactical and strategic about what we're going to do. You know, our biggest concerns are to uh, keep people safe. Uh, we can replace a tree, but we can't replace a life. And so we want to keep the public and the firefighters safe. And so we know a fire is uh, going to be very aggressive in the way that it's traveling to a location. We might, we might not put people in front of that, but we might know that it will be there in three days. So maybe the next two days we can try to make better lines or prepare the houses or the infrastructure so that they don't burn stuff like that. So we use the information that people like me give to make operational and tactical decisions so that's what that role is and then we really work into that into the long term to try to understand um, where we're sitting with regard to this season so is this fire in June and is this normal for June you know try to compare to other other known things that people might remember so people remember a fire from 2012 that was also in a general area and so people were very curious, is this going to act like Hyde Park, the place where Hyde Park burned? Will that be enough to stop change from progressing? So we look at all those kinds of things and then, you know, try to get the best information we can using the science available to us and the, and the models available to us. And they're getting better all the time. So, you know, maybe it, it wasn't perfect 10 years ago. It's never going to be perfect, but we're always improving. we think that these tools can help people make better decisions. Dr. Teske, I opened this episode with a brief overview of the history of the U.S. Forest Service and its relation to fire ecology. How do you view our society's current relationship with forests as a fire ecologist? Well, 
we love the forests and we love it because it's beautiful. There's trees, there's grass, there's shrubs, and it's it's all, you know, different kinds of forests have different characteristics. And what we're seeing is that some forests have not had natural processes in them um, or uh, man-made processes that might be natural processes. So you might have put out fires and so vegetation grows thicker than it may have normally grown prior to fire suppression. Um, we can go in and treat those areas at times, but if, if we don't do that, then some of these thick conditions basically cause the forest potentially to become healthy. And unhealthy forests, you know, their their immunity to things like stressors like bugs or fire or root rot or different natural phenomena is lessening. So things that I am seeing in different parts of the country are maybe Bug kill. You have a lot of bug kill in the Rocky Mountains in North Korea. In the, in the Great Basin, which is Nevada, Southern Idaho, Utah, we have a lot of invasive species. So fires came through and have taken out the, the native species and they've been replaced by things like cheatgrass, which changes how the fire cycle works in those ecosystems. So there's a lot of different conditions that make a forest or a grassland or a shrubland, not what it used to be and not healthy, that would be considered red flags. Um, and then you couple that with things like climate change or urban growth um, out into forests and in places that need fire. So you have uh, compounding conditions <laughs> that make things tricky. Yeah, and one of those conditions you mentioned that can change a landscape was the presence of cheatgrass. And that's something I'm seeing more often in Colorado. I want to ask, is there anything that you know we can do when we are in nature? I know I just try to brush it off my clothes and make sure I don't carry it with me. But what do you recommend? Yeah, that's a, it's a tricky question. I know there's research into biological controls for it, so fungus or amoebas or whatever that can, that can maybe control that, but they don't really know. It outcompetes the natives. You know, the, the cycle of cheatgrass is on a different timeline than that of grasses. And so it's, it's sprouting earlier and it's, it's coming up earlier and it's taking advantage of, you know, this bare ground in a way that the native grasses and the yeah, plants are not. So it's a tough one to help compete for sure. And the best you can do is, you know, like you said, you know, if you're out there, just make sure that you're washing your rigs and, and taking those, you know, getting those seeds out of there so when you go face to place, you're not carrying them around, um, checking your clothes. But yeah, it's a big problem. Yeah, cheatgrass is moving so quickly through our ecosystems. I do want to shift gears. Dr. Teske, I've heard you mention the term fuel treatment a few times. Can you go into more detail as to what that is? My my layman's terms of fuels treatments are you basically give the vegetation a haircut, right? So the vegetation is always growing, and the more vegetation, and vegetation is synonymous with fuels if it's available to burn, so dry grass, dry brush, dry needles, um, the more vegetation there is, the more that is potentially available to burn. So if you can treat those fuels by removing them or thinning them or um, you know, making changing from cheatgrass back to natives or, or whatever it is, then you can impact those, those fires and, uh, and how they behave. So, 
by removing fuels, you're, you're giving a fuels treatment, you're doing a haircut, you're, you're um, batching, you know, you're, you're reducing what's available to burn, and that's what a fuels treatment is. Yeah, and I want to ask, what are your thoughts on the people who are against these types of fuel treatments, whether they think it's too expensive or they're against the prescribed fires? Do you have any words on the matter? You know, by doing nothing, you're making a choice, right? And that choice is to kick the can down the road. So can you tackle the problem now or are you going to leave it to the people behind you to tackle later because you don't want to deal with it? So treating the vegetation with fire or thinning or grazing, what, you know, whatever your, your needs is in an appropriate way. I think it's important, especially if you could do it on, in terms of weather that are not, uh, not crazy, right? Those uh, kinds of treatment activities on our terms instead of on nature's terms could potentially, you could be strategic about it. Dr. Teske, I'm going to read a quote I hear environmentalists say, and I'd like your opinion on it. 2020 was one of the most severe years for wildfires in the last 50 years. In the next 50 years, 2020 will be the low end of the years with severe wildfires. What are your thoughts? Well, I think I think that quote is true. I've seen it in my career. We're changing. You know, the, the weather's changing. Our fire season starts earlier. It stays longer. It used to just be a summer job, and, and now it's hard to get on if you're a student because you need to go back to school and they need you for a long period of time. In 2000, that was a big, big wildfire season in North Montana, North Idaho, Montana. And people had never seen anything like it. And I'm hearing, I've never seen anything like this pretty much every single fire I'm on these days. And so I feel like that quote is correct, that it, it's just going to keep getting, you know, we're going to keep having big, fire seasons, big wildfires, lots of active fires at the same time. Our weather's changed, our seasons have changed, and our fuels have changed. And so, you know, that's, that's a big <laughs> melting pot of conditions to make things you know, potentially worse. Um, we're, we're definitely not, not every year is going to be a big fire year. Um, we'll have wet years, we'll have drought years where nothing can grow. So even if we do have lightning, maybe there's nothing to start it. Start the fire. So, you know, all these conditions and how they interplay with each other are really convicting. I, I do think that what we're seeing now is, is here. We're going to see more of this in the future. And, and this could be the start of it. It could be a blip. It could be, you know, the low end of it. I'm not, I can't predict that. It's definitely not out of normal anymore. Yeah. And so I want to ask, are there any policy decisions or resources or anything else that you as a fire ecologist need in these situations? I think science and policy and management are intertwined in this loop. And, you know, which one comes first and which one forms the other is, is definitely, you know, they're, they're continuously changing, right? So you find out something new with the science and you try to implement that on the management side and maybe it becomes a policy as well and so I, I, I think funding the science is important so that we understand uh, what's happening I think that our, our natural resources, the benefit to the public is huge but I think that we're not uh, seen in the same way as some other important things out there and so trying to um, make sure that natural resources are part of the public's experience uh, so how do we how do we do that? Well, we we find science 
we do science, we promote those messages, we integrate that into policy and management, and you know, it's just a continuous cycle. So the resources we need are um, data sets, uh, computing solutions, really creative solutions. You know, what are what are some challenges that we are starting to see that we haven't had to think about before? We need some creative minds looking at those things. So those are some some ways that we can help uh, think about those things and then to implement it in the next. So how do you establish what you've found in those scientific, the science work, or how do you establish what the policy is mandating? Um, that's the trick for the managers. And I think if you can get scientists and managers talking together, and working together and understanding each other's needs, I think that that could really help because there's a lot of uh, land managers that are really familiar with the land, but they may may or may not be as comfortable with the scientific side of things. But if you have a scientist that might not be comfortable with the land management side of things, if you can pair those those groups up and help them to understand each other's problems, I think you have a pretty powerful combination. So more collaboration. Dr. Teske, thank you for being a guest on this episode of the Livable Future Podcast. You can find more resources in the whole episode transcript at the livablefuturepodcast.com. Please remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and thanks for listening.